seen this with me. I've made this mistake too. I've hired someone that was certainly competent, full of character, but Andy, I just didn't like them. And it wasn't them. It was just that I just didn't have anything in common with them. I didn't generally enjoy their call. Like if they were calling me and I was on another call, I might not jump off the call to answer it. But if it was one of my other reps that I really liked and had some chemistry with, if they called, I might jump and, and take the call. And so what I realized is that you're actually setting them up to fail. If you don't genuinely want to just do life with them and know about the things that they care about outside of work, what they're trying to achieve as a person, you won't invest the time that they deserve. Hi, friends. Welcome to the Sales Enablement Podcast. I'm your host, Andy Paul. That was Nigel Green. Nigel is a sales consultant, sales trainer, and author of a book titled Revenue Harvest, a sales leader's almanac for planning the perfect year. And in his book, Nigel writes about the similarities of selling and farming, at least in terms of the cycles that each go through, and sometimes how a certain percentage of the outcome you expect is beyond your control, like a farmer with unexpected weather events. So in our conversation, we dig into how you as a revenue leader can prepare for the unexpected. We also dive into Nigel's seven principles for sales leaders, and these have a lot in common with the idea of farming, including that a lot of thought planning, and work takes place before you put the first seeds into the ground. We're going to get to all of this and much, much more, but before we get to Nigel, I want to remind you to subscribe to this podcast wherever you listen to it, and if you subscribe, we'd certainly appreciate it if you could leave us a review, give us your feedback about how we're doing. So, thank you. All right, let's jump into it. Nigel, welcome to the show. Andy, thank you for having me. It's my pleasure. Well, it's a pleasure to have you here. So, um, you moved to a farm. That's like a great place to start the conversation. You moved to a farm. So why'd you move to a farm? And then you wrote a book, having moved to the farm. Yes. So I moved to the farm almost out of necessity. I was um, exactly one year into uh, a new venture. I had helped a good friend of mine who was the CEO of a company called Reload. We raised... Uh, a substantial Series A. Mm-hmm. I just hired over the course of twelve months uh, thirty-five sales and marketing professionals in a variety of, of different roles, and um, it was beginning to feel like well, it was becoming unavoidable that what I was working on. So the work of building another sales and marketing team was working on me in ways that I didn't like anymore. So. Mm-hmm. Um, so the story really starts. So I had an, an exit at a very young age in 2012. And that really, um, I don't even want to say it wet my appetite. It, it brought awareness to me that incentive compensation and stock is like the way uh, that a sales leader or a marketing leader should think about creating wealth. And then uh, built another sales team for another healthcare company and then sold it in 2015. And then there I was, right after doing that, jumping right back into another one. And I said, Nigel, this is, this is shaping you into being someone that's got this insatiable appetite. Uh, and what's driving you to do this isn't all the right reasons. So I moved to a farm to create some spatial distance from the machine, if you uh-huh. will, and, re- and think about what it was that I really wanted my life and my craft and, and all the gifts and talents that I have, how I really wanted to use them. 
And what did you decide? Well, I decided that it would be more fulfilling for me to work with sales leaders that were bumping into a lot of the challenges that absent of a good quiver of mentors in my life could have been career ending for me. And so like you don't you don't have to if you listen to any sales podcast, you don't have to tune in very long before you hear some statistic around the tenure of the of the post being, you know, somewhere between 16 and 20 months and uh-huh. and the reality is it's it's just true. And and part of it is there's not a lot of good guidance for the sales leader. There is plenty of stuff for the seller, the manager, but for the the small subset of leaders that have, uh, you know, financial fiduciary responsibility, the business they have, um, they have to submit to a management team and then to a board, and they have all these other kind of new bureaucratic uh, pressures that they haven't felt before. Um, it. It's a it's a space that I wanted to step into since I've already had you know three three runs successful runs with a board with a management team with shareholders and mm-hmm. exits and 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 so I just wanted to I wanted to teach people about that. So the result of that was your book uh, titled "Revenue Harvest: A Sales Leader's Almanac for Planning the Perfect Year." So you're leaning into the the uh, the, the farming metaphor, if you will. Well, it. it when I moved to the farm and was thrusted into this farming community, a couple of things became clear to me. Uh, there are, like, you, you can't be a farmer and not produce a crop. It just it doesn't work. And so it's one of the oldest professions. It's been subjected to, um, throughout history, uh, advances in technology, all types of disruption, disintermediation, policy changes, depending on who's in office, they don't get to control the price. And then there's this old factor of the weather. Like they never get to pick the right amount of rain, the right seasonality. So there are all these things that they can't control, yet somehow they figure out a way to produce a harvest year in and year out, or they're not in business. And it, it occurred to me that there are a lot of, you know, quote unquote, sales leaders that that don't create year in, year out, consistent success, but still want the title. And I felt like there were a number of traps and fads and gimmicks that stood in the way. And so what I did is I just borrowed principles from the agriculture community, whether you're a rancher or you're growing crops. And I sat down and I talked to them about how they plan their year, whether it's one harvest or multiple harvests, multiple growing seasons. And the parallels were undeniable. Uh, and so of that came the seven principles of the book. And I think they're timeless. It's worked for uh, a very, very old profession. And, I, and I've just taken those timeless nuggets and kind of mashed them up into the language of a sales leader. And that's the book. So what do you grow? Corn, soy, wheat, and alfalfa. Oh, cool. So how big's your farm? My personal farm is 30 acres. And mm-hmm. on that, uh, we, we don't do much with the land, but my family, my wife's family more specifically, has farmed uh, this part of Kentucky since 1833. And they have a far much more meaningful uh, plot of land that they've been farming for seven generations now. Huh. Wow. I mean, that in itself, and still be, they've had the family still farming it. That's, that is quite a feat these days. Yes. So, um, 
All right. So <laughs> we talked about it. as a sales leader, similar to farmer, you have lots of challenges, some of which you control, some of which you don't. Um, as interesting one, because you were talking a quote, you said like the farmer, you as sales leader face challenges largely outside your control, lack of talented staff and sales rep turnover, inadequate lead generation and some other things, which I completely agree with. But don't you as a sales leader have control over your staff and some degree of control over sales rep turnover? You can to some degree. Uh, I think where uh, where you lose control is when you don't stand up for how you want to build the team. Like so many sales leaders fall victim to the the, the real only recruiting tool is a comp plan, or maybe it's some easy to sell product, and they don't really think about the culture that they want. And so, because they don't lean into what you say, which is actually owning your t- owning your team and owning the fact that you do get to control and that you should not let finance dictate the compensation plan or you should have a a more uh, connected relationship with product or whatever that that attracting that magnet that's going to draw talent in how mm-hmm. do you how do you build a team to retain them and that's really uh, kind of the things that trying to speak to you. Like I'm on coaching calls all the time where, where sales leaders are saying, well, I mean, the comp plan is the comp plan. I'm like, well, <laughs> who wrote it? <laughs> and since when? Did you write it? <laughs> yeah, exactly. Did you write the comp? No. Did who The CFO wrote it. Oh, how much experience do they have selling to customers? And and so what ends up happening is the the business strategy. So what what the board believes the business is going to do over the next three to five years through the you know the strategic objectives that the CEO has promised them so they can return the money at a certain yield is misaligned with the sales strategy. And so we're incenting behavior, we're incenting things that don't support the overarching business strategy. And then the sales leader in 18 months is miffed that it didn't work out. Or the targets themselves and sent sales behavior that is just bad. Bingo. Yeah. Yeah. So, well, so let's, let's dig into that, that first part of that topic. Cause yeah, this is one that I feel strongly about is, is, you know, if you're a, a sales leader is just don't accept things <laughs> that get handed to you. I know this is easy to say, but yeah, you know, someone who's, Push back numerous times. Um, yeah, it's your career, right? <laughs> is is you can just take it and oh, thank you very much for this unreasonable target you just set. And uh, yeah, yeah, I'll start playing my exit right now, or try to put some reality into it. And that right there, Andy, is the essence of what I wanted to do with with this next season of my career is to take this this pain that is felt by sales leaders. They know that like, okay, maybe I need to push back, but how, I mean, I don't, how am I going to you know, go and navigate this with the CEO and then with the board? And, and so working with them to understand how to navigate those waters and anchor the requests that they need, the resources or the right sizing or the realistic you know, bringing expectations back into reality in a way that supports 
what they what the board wants and what the CEO needs uh, and how it, it does support a healthier growth trajectory and, and thinking through secondary and, and tertiary consequences uh, in a way that's not damning to their career. Well, let's see if we can give some specifics to people because this is something that's been talked about a lot recently. We posted a couple times recently about uh, the <laughs> vagaries of quota setting um, and goal setting within certainly within the startup world. Yeah, tons of engagement on that on LinkedIn. People obviously, it's a topic of uh, <laughs> personal concern to many. And so the question is: Okay, your advice. You're a sales leader. You know, we're getting close to the fourth quarter, and next year's sales plan is going to be coming up before too long. How do you navigate those waters? What's your advice on that? Well, you have to start now. Okay, so yeah. uh, I mean, that's that's the first piece of advice is start now. Uh, the, we, before the fourth quarter is even starting. So the way that a lot of these companies work, uh, and you know this, but maybe people listening don't, is um, like all of my colleagues that are in private equity or in venture deal are hitting up all of their portfolio companies now and getting them to think about the 2022 fiscal mm-hmm. budget. So the management team, the executive team, they're going off and in their, in their silos and in their sterile spreadsheets, they're building out this beautiful model for what next year's growth is going to be, like 30 to 40. And if you're earlier stage companies, 100, 150% growth. And it looks really good. It meets all the financial pro formas for them to grow out of cash, not have to get any more debt, start paying back some of the equity. But they're not talking to you, the sales leader. They're not asking you to come to the conversation. And you've got to go to them and say, hey, I, I know that you're working on this. I'd like to be a part of this conversation. And here's why I think it's important because you, th- there are a lot of companies that expect that you can just grow 30 or 40% revenues with a 5 to 10% increment in your expense budget. That's not going to work. Or, or that you're going to launch a new product in the next coming year and you're just going to put it in the bag of your existing sales team without wondering if that's going to compromise their, their selling capacity on the already existing products. So there, there are things that you need to speak into truths. You need to pull data. Uh, and, and oh, by the way, when it comes to pulling data, every company that I work with is having a real hard time taking the past couple of years' sales results and using that for any type of intelligent predictor of what 2022 is going to look like. So I think now more than ever, it's paramount for the sales leader to be involved in those budgeting and forecasting conversations because so much of historical sales data is inconsistent, volatile, and largely unreliable. Yeah, I mean, certainly barring a company that's you know, selling an, into the sales space, which had sort of exponential growth over the past couple of years as already went remote, yeah, you can't really rely. History is not an indicator of, of future performance, as all the disclaimers on the commercials say. Uh, and that presents a challenge for a sales leader. I mean, first of all, to get involved in the conversation, uh, which we've all experienced. Uh, <laughs> so arriving at, at work one day and having the number thrust upon us and then having to sort of go into negotiation mode. Um, as you said, much better to start off earlier and deal with what the assumptions are that are being going into the plan. It's much easier to to be a part of the conversation, even if they 
tell you it's in a limited capacity and, and there are a lot of constraints already built into the budget. I don't know of many instances where the budget's been approved by the board and the CEO starts passing it down to P&L leaders and there's any room to go back and amend anything. It just doesn't happen. So you're hamstrung. Yeah. Yeah, I've had a couple instances where I've had limited success, but it's, it's, uh, it's not moving the needle in a big way. But I think the point is, is being able to not only control your own destiny in your role and be an advocate for what your team needs, but it, there's a bigger opportunity at play, which is to help shape the strategic narrative of the company and to show the board and demonstrate to your, your peers and colleagues and the executive team that you can think bigger than just they, you're not just a salesperson, that you actually are a strategic thinker, that you understand economic models and you understand inputs and outputs and that you can be a, really truly be a peer to them. Yeah. I mean, think about that from the perspective of the, you know, the inputs and outputs is, is you know, one simple example I like to, to use with CEOs and boards that are sort of doing top-down, as you talked about, top-down planning on this is... <clears throat> say, okay, well, yeah, you want to increase sales by, let's say, 30% next year, is just look at the inputs. Is, okay, you might have staff increase, but of the people that are here, and we're expecting them individually, let's say, to up their game by 30%, 40%, how have you enabled them to do that? I mean, where's this, where's this performance improvement going to come from on an individual level that will enable you to aggregate up to the number you want? And it's like a... Consideration that's just never taking into account. Correct. And the way this plays out sometimes is, and I see this, and I know you do too because it's what you sell, sometimes it's easier to go get another person, another body that could be hundred dollars to $150,000 a year of fully baked expenses. It's easier to go advocate for that in the middle of a selling year than it is to go get a tool for your team that's $59 to $100 a head per month. And it's a variable expense. If it's not working, you can turn it off. Yet somehow the, the perception of, of technology uh, and enablement tools that increase the productivity of individual contributors uh, until very recently was just seen as fluff and unnecessary. Um, and it's, it, it's, it baffles me still to this day, that, that we're willing to just throw more bodies at it instead of making the people we have more productive and, and standing them up with the tools they need to sell better. Yeah, tools, skills, ongoing coaching, training, all that, yeah. Which goes back to your first point when you said, don't you have control of the people? Well, guess what? Really good salespeople will not even come to your organization if you can't answer the question of what's the tech stack look like, if, if you're not equipping the, the best people in your industry with the, with the greatest tools so they can actually go do the job and they're stuck in just la-la land of administrative tasks and losing selling hours and having to go to these crazy meetings and pull you, you know, uh, pivot tables out of Excel from uh, salesforce.com data dumps, they're not going to come. Mm-hmm. And if they do come, they're going to leave. Yeah. Well, but we're seeing, again, very high turnover rates with salespeople these days, which is in part due to, at least if you believe the surveys are being done, is, is 
oftentimes a perception of uh, a lack of development, op- personal development opportunities within the organization, meaning either, yeah, mostly it's it's boss oriented, right? Is they're fire, they're firing their boss by leaving. Uh, yeah, they're not getting the support they need in addition to the tech stack. They're not getting the support they need to, to level up. Exactly. And that is that is not new. People always leave because of their manager. So that that's not that, that's not a new thing. But it is, I think, the new texture of it or why it's becoming so more relevant is uh, I, I think that there are, and this is, I don't have any data to support this. Maybe you do. But this is my experience. I'm seeing more and more specifically new managers. And the reason why I say new managers is because the demand for selling capacity has ballooned so much in the past few years that companies, particularly tech companies, are growing so quickly that they're, they're promoting producers and the managers at a mm-hmm. very quick rate. Yep. Then they're coupling that with an even more dangerous mistake, which is increasing that manager span of control. So new managers with new sellers really only need about six to eight direct reports to do the amount of coaching that they need. And a lot of companies, you're seeing 12 to 15. And and I tell these managers, Jesus only had 12. How do you get 15? So didn't you have 24 at one point you wrote about in the book? Yeah. And it was terrible. Yeah, of course (laughs) you can't coach. And so, but it it goes back, but it goes back to, to your point. There is no coaching being done when you have that many direct reports you can't do anything but manage spreadsheets and the and and information. You can't actually coach anyone. Well, and we compound it by not not coaching the coaches how to coach. Too many coaches not teaching the coaches how to coach or coaching them. And yeah, we we willy nilly promote people as you said, top producers, tournament managers, but especially in tech space. You know, given a lot of the, smaller mid-sized companies that are there don't have the infrastructure to train. And so we leave these people all on their own. And we, you know, we wonder we wonder why sales managers have such a hard time. It's like, well, we, we're not equipping them. I mean, it's, uh, yeah, I get sort of frustrated. and get on LinkedIn and read things about people sort of finger pointing at sellers for, you know, individual contributors for not, you know, for bad behavior of one sort or another. And it's like, well, you know, this is sort of the way they've been trained, but the people that's been training them, who are training them, haven't been trained either. And we sort of go up the the level. I mean, it is, you know, how often has a sales director ever been trained on how to manage performance specifically? Or how often has a, a VP ever been received training on, yeah, how to manage performance improvement out of individuals? Some basics go, how to coach? Never. Yeah, I- and let's talk about that for a second, the difference between training and coaching. So I can just kind of rattle off the last training exercises or training modules that I've gone through. And very rarely does something that I'm trained on actually stick. I mean, you have to go back and, and even if you've been tested on it, you have to go back and revisit the material. Mm-hmm. But if I think back even to my days at playing sport, coaching sticks. And and the reason it sticks is because training gives you the answer. Coaching requires you to come up with the answer. Good coaching. And that Requi- takes, good coaching. Good coaching yes. Right. Good yeah. coaching requires you, the coachee, through a series of questions that the coach asks to come up with the answer. And it sticks. 
And there is a craft. I don't want to say it's an art because it's a mix of science-based questions and, and the art side is knowing how to ask the question in the right way with the right tone. So it truly is a craft to coaching that is, you, don't, you only get better at it through reps and uh, that just takes time. Yeah. Well, we need to teach people, right? It's, it's this is the part that, that I said that sort of drives me nuts is we're willing to spend billions of dollars every year and for people listening to the show, they hear me say this all the time, billions of dollars every year to train individual contributors, and we invest almost nothing to train the people who are responsible for the individual contributors, to, responsible to coach them up and to help them elevate their, their skills and to develop up to the next level. And it's like, well, my thought is, well, why don't we change that? Why don't we invest most of those training dollars, you know, anywhere from 15 to 20 billion is the amount spent each year that I've read, is... Let's take the lion's share of that and invest it in making managers better. Wouldn't that be a higher level? I leverage? agree. Well, and if you think about, if you take the expense and you amortize it over all of the sellers on the team, I mean, if you think of it that way, like if I'm going to invest, you know, whatever, we're going to spend 10 grand on a coach for our sales manager and they've got 10 direct reports. So that's $1,000 of direct report over the course of the year. If they don't get better, then, you know, then it's not working. But I, I tend to believe that, it's, a, it's an easy math equation. And Andy, I, I've actually learned the hard way in my practice that now when, when a sales leader wants to come and be a part of my year-long coaching program, I have two requirements. One, that this, I have a conversation with their leader mm-hmm. and they actually endorse it. And it's mandatory that the company pays for the training. Right. Otherwise, I don't, I don't do it. Because I've learned that... Uh, even if the sales leader is committed to their own personal and professional development, if the CEO isn't invested or whoever, the COO, whoever it is that there's, they're reporting to, isn't just as committed to taking what they learn during our coaching sessions and helping them apply them more broadly into the organization, it's a waste of everyone's time. Yes, I agree. I think it's a great approach that you're taking there. I, I, I think the... We don't have enough, uh, let's say, a program like yours, maybe a mastermind or a coaching, or maybe even just you know, a year-long curriculum of some sort for the CEOs, the CEFOs, and so on about sales and building a, a sales culture and, and how do you set goals and all these other things that we continue to talk about because you know, culture gets set from the top. And why don't we invest in managers? Well, because the CFO and the CEOs are making the decision that, yeah, we don't we don't need to invest that money. It's yeah, what we're doing is okay. Um, and you really see that level of engagement, at least through my experience with the engagements I've done, is with the CEOs thinking, yeah, this is really a top priority for us. You rarely do. One of the things that I've built into my year-long program is quarterly. Uh, intensive with the rest of the C-suite and the mm-hmm. sales leader, and it mm-hmm. and it's to just to keep exercising the muscle of everything that you talked about. That we have to keep revisiting. What was the plan? What were the inputs? How are what are the measures that we're seeing moving? Looking at the that leader that I'm coaching, looking at their scorecard and saying, are your stakeholders, product, operations, finance, marketing. Are they seeing you improve and your not only your ability to execute at hitting the number, but how you come back and give relevant feedback from the market 
to the other departments to shape the future of this business. Mm-hmm. And that's that's really what it comes down to. Hitting a number is it's hard enough, but it that's the that's expected of you. What makes you dangerous in the role is hitting the number while being able to come back and contribute to other departments and truly be a leader, not just in your sales division, but in the company to think about product innovation, new ways in which to add more value to the customer, where's the competitive landscape moving. That kind of stuff is all part of the job, and it rarely gets touched because we just have a hard time hitting the number. True, true. But you, you, even from the get-go, though, you, to your point, as a sales leader, you have to be involved in something beyond sales within the company. You, know, you have to be advocating, uh, I'd say, pretty much from day one. Obviously, you want to get, understand what's going on around you and understand the situation. But, yeah, I can't imagine having been in a, any of the VP sales roles I was in and not, not be involved, you know, to be isolated, be siloed, and not be involved in all the other departments and bringing back the voice of the customer and, and you know, participating in what the future is going to be. Yeah, it, it's it's really important. So you write about hiring better. I wanted because we had talked about um, you know managers, and you write this in the book. You say you know sales manager is the least trained employee on the sales team, which I think we were just talking about, which is unfortunate and should not be, but it is is the case. And one of those things that they have no training in is how to hire, and how to hire better. Um, and by better, I guess you know hiring better meaning hiring more qualified candidates that will stick around longer. Yeah. And so I, and I talk about this in the book, I think there are a couple of traps around qualified candidates. I think, and I've learned this the hard way that when you're trying to build a best in class team, it's just not enough to hire qualified candidates. Too much is at risk for, uh, or too much could go wrong. So you can hire qualified candidates, and it's an important to remember that everyone that you hire, like it or not, is going to shape the culture in some way. Mm-hmm. They're going to bring things into the dynamic that you you're not going you may be able to harness at some point, but you just can't control it. And your job as a leader is to take competency which is their ability to do the roles and responsibilities of the job and make it the least important. It it, it doesn't mean that it's not important. So let me just say that and emphasize that. It is very important that they're competent, but it is not nearly enough. And the reason it's not nearly enough is because of the way it's going to shape the culture. You have to be mindful of, is this person that I'm bringing on, how are they going to make this culture better? Where, where are the potentials of it to be a detractor to the culture I'm trying to build? So you've got to have like this character component to who you're bringing on. Do they have the same value set? Mm-hmm. Do they subscribe to some set of guiding principles? It may not have to be yours, but some of them maybe should be. And then that kind of gets into the third part. I've seen this with me. I've made this mistake too. I've hired someone that was certainly competent, full of character, but Andy, I just didn't like them. And it wasn't them. It was just that I just didn't have anything in common with them. 
um, I didn't generally enjoy their call. If I was like, if they were calling me and I mm-hmm. was on another call, I might not jump off the call to answer it. But if it was one of my other reps that I really liked and had some chemistry with that they called, I might jump and and take the call. And, and so what I realized is that you're actually setting them up to fail. If you don't genuinely want to just do life with them and know about the things that they care about outside of work, um, what they're trying to achieve as a person, you won't invest the time that they deserve into their career and they won't work and it'll be your fault. Oh, absolutely. Yeah. And when I was using the word qualified, I was talking about all those, all those characteristics. I mean, I think that, that the problem is that too many, um, say hiring managers over-index on the idea of competency or specific industry experience and don't pay attention to character, don't pay attention to values, don't pay attention to fit. And they look at it as hiring an individual as opposed to hiring a member of a team. Bingo. And that's, that's the point that I'm trying to emphasize too, is that, you know, it, all of these things are, you have to, you have to figure out, not only fit from character, chemistry, and then competency, but but also where are they relative to the stage of the business? They could be totally qualified to do the job, but maybe the most relevant experience they had was three jobs ago because of the stage of the company and, and what you're asking them to do. Mm-hmm. And it's there's not a lot of training, uh, to your point. There's just not a lot of training on that. And I think what... What compounds this, like, well, I think the answer, right, is, is in addressing what compounds the problem. Too many sales managers, from front line up, they don't have a talent pipeline in the same way that they require their producers to have a deal pipeline. That's a great point. Because at some highly inconvenient time, someone that you did not want to leave is going to leave. Mm -hmm. And you owe it to yourself, to the business, and to everyone else to have a few options readily available. In the same way that if if you tell, if one of your producers loses a big account, you're going to look at them and say, well, I'm not going to give you any quota relief. I mean, you got to go replace it. Well, that's what the board expects. The board expects that if your top producer left, one, they want us to figure out how how we got to that place, but then two, who's up? Mm-hmm. And too many managers don't spend enough time building the talent pipeline. And I think that is the answer to getting better at interviewing is holding yourself accountable to a quota, a certain number of interviews and letting, because when you do it that way, Andy, when you are more proactive and you're not reacting to a vacancy or a new role that you got to fill quickly, right. The, the process can be a little bit more organic. You can spend more time. You can do what I like to call like dating or trial <laughs> exercises because there's no pressure of getting it filled. So you can say, hey, you know what? I'm going to just send you over some material for you to review. And I just want to know how you would think about it. Or, and so there's no pressure. It's not as formal. You get, to, you get the real candidate, not the, the postured candidate that's looking, you know, that has to make a decision about this opportunity. And it just makes for a better interview process. And then the two parties can make a more informed decision about whether or not the chemistry and the character are going to match out. I think it's a great point. I think that I remember being counseled on this earlier in my career by a manager who said, yeah, you need to spend, I 
forget the exact percentage of time he spent. He said I should spend, but I think it was around 15% of my time I should spend on sort of future recruiting and just, you know, understanding like who the competitors are that we ran into, the, you know, competitive salespeople for competitors that uh, potentially could be a fit or other people that we knew. And this was, you know, well before modern social tools. But yeah, there's an emphasis on that is because you can't afford, especially in a fast growing organization, a startup, you can't afford a big gap for an extended period of time. And the other thing that works to your advantage as a leader, if you do this well, uh, if you've got a defined hiring process, and if, if you don't have one, I've got a resource on my site that you can go look at and it might help you begin to shape, shape your own. One of those steps in the process should be exposing even a, a frontline seller to someone else on the leadership team. And, and one of the benefits of that is even if you don't have an open position, you when you have your CEO or, or someone on the management team interview someone that's really good, they know it. It's undeniable to someone, even in a non-selling role, good sales talent. And I, I can think of at least 10 to 12 times in my personal life or in my, the, in my life now as a coach with some of the leaders I coach where there was no budget available, but then all of a sudden we can go hire that person. So then now your ability to hit the goals becomes easier because you just got more selling capacity and you just did your job, which was bring the best talent to the business and let them decide how many salespeople we need. And so that it's another, it's a kind of an interesting tactic to, uh, to get better talent, even when there's not necessarily a position available. Yeah, I know. I think it's a great point. Um, I immediately was thinking back to sort of two times I'd done that where, yeah, I just spotted somebody that's like, oh my gosh, we need to have this person on the team. And we had no headcount allocation at that point. And yeah. I took your advice. I did just what you had, what you just said, except it was a long time ago. But yeah, let the let the CEO say no to a really good person, and they they rarely do. Uh, yeah, that's been my experience. Rarely do. I've unfortunately I had it happen relatively recently, um, but in general they don't. Yeah. Well, and if they do, so here here's the contingency: if they do. And because I, I have had it happen that way, where they said, "No, we don't have a budget." Well, then my next question is, are they better right now? To the like, if you hired them today, are they better than the person that comes to mind? You would replace them with if you coached them really well for six months. And and I say that because what what it forces the leader to do is, am I willing to do the work with this person that I need to coach up? It's almost like a, a conviction test for them to say, all right, here's, here's Johnny, who is 65% to plan, been here nine months. You know what all the challenges he's faced. I don't. We've talked about it sometimes. But would you take Sally, who the CEO said, love her, we don't have a spot. Would you take her today over Johnny in six months? And if the answer is yes, let's do Johnny a favor and allow him to go be successful somewhere else. Yeah, it's a risk, right? But a measured one at best. But that's the kind of thinking that I think we have to 
force our sales managers to go to play it out and think about be strategic second yeah second and third order consequences of their decisions so that they have more conviction about their decisions yeah but also i, I agree 100 percent. and in addition to is just think strategically about the business right as you would as if you were an owner of the business what, how much of your time are you spans, excuse me, spending, can't talk today, I apologize, how much of your time are you spending on capacity building for your organization? Exactly. And it should probably be about 25% of your time you're spending on capacity building for your organization. And that includes the strategic recruiting, as we're talking about, building a strategic pipeline of potential candidates. Now, even though talent is in demand, it's relatively easier than ever to do that. Yeah, and it's a really easy exercise to, to kind of test where you're spending your time. I mean, just take your calendar for the last 90 days and, and begin to bucket it by, mm -hmm. is this an internal meeting? Is this a coaching meeting? Is this the monthly financial meeting? And, and I, I mean, you're, you know this, you know the answer. A lot of the leaders, if you, if you actually do the time to, see, to do this, you'll see that, and I'm and I'm I don't mean this to be calloused, but I bet many of you listening have spent zero in the nine last ninety days, literally no hours. If you don't have an unless you have an open position that you're recruiting for. So that's my caveat is if you're mm -hmm. full staffed, you probably spent zero time yep. recruiting. And that's a blind spot for you. Yep. You you are one email away or one phone call that you didn't expect to get on a Friday afternoon from having what could be a great year derailed in a matter of minutes. And by the same token, take that same calendar and, and bucket up how much time you spent on your own personal development during that time as a sales leader. Chances are that's zero as well. Probably so. Yeah. And so as much emphasis we put on developing our people and, and helping our people develop is you have the same imperative as a sales leader to do the same. And so some percentage of your time it's 5%, 10% has to be developed or has to be invested in your own development. Whether it's you know, taking a coaching class like what Nigel offers or uh, you know, you've got a reading list or you know, have some VPs that come on the show that uh, you know, can't wait to talk about all the books they've been reading. And there's, yeah, there's energy flowing from them because they're learning new things. Just as I am <laughs> learning new things from doing a thousand interviews on the show. Um, and you have a podcast. I mean, I presume you're learning the same things. Yes. I try to use the podcast as a place for me to go to school. Yeah, absolutely. I like to say it's the most selfish thing I've ever done. <laughs> yeah. So, all right. Well, Nigel, thank you very much for joining me. We've run out of time here now. But um, if people want to learn more about what you do, your work, uh, any of the services you offer, or your book, how can they do that? Easy. Uh, you can find me on LinkedIn, uh, same way you and I met. You can go to nigelgreen.co, and uh, there's plenty of stuff there. You can get the book there. You can buy the book anywhere you get books. If you go to nigelgreen.co, you'll get the book for just what it costs me to put it in an envelope, to print it, put it in an envelope, and mail it to you. So you get it for just my hard cost. I think it's like six bucks or something like that. So um, if, you, if you're willing to wait a couple days, but if you're like everyone else in the world and need it tomorrow, Amazon is your friend. <laughs> yes, it is. And more so over the last 18 months. So, all right, well, Nigel, thank you very much.
Well, thank you. I really enjoyed it, and I appreciate uh, the questions. Very thoughtful. All right. Talk to you soon. Okay, friends, that's it for this episode. First of all, I want to thank you for taking the time to listen. As always, I'm so grateful for your support of the show. And I want to thank my guest, Nigel Green, for sharing his insights with us today. If you enjoyed this episode, please subscribe to this podcast, Sales Enablement with Andy Paul, on iTunes, Spotify, or wherever you listen to podcasts. So thank you for your help with that. And as always, thank you so much for investing your time with me today. Until next time, I'm your host, Andy Paul. Good selling, everyone.